E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Aging wines to perfection is a mix of cold science and subjective art. Finding that sweet spot to open a bottle can be a very personal decision. And when we nail it, a truly magical wine experience can unfold. But what exactly are we calibrating our palates to be tasting as wines age? What exactly is going on inside the bottle? If we focus in on tannins, tannins and the perception of tannins greatly affect how we perceive the texture of wine. Tannins feel differently based on what kind of tannins they are. Hydrolyzable tannins, usually from oak, or condensed tannins from seeds, stems, and skins. Tannins want to bond with things. They're very reactive. As they move through wine, they are constantly joining up with other molecules and breaking apart. Joining up with other molecules and breaking apart. Joining and breaking. Joining and breaking. Joining and breaking. Joining and breaking. In a long dance. A dance that can last decades. In the search for strong, covalent bonds. I want a covalent bond. During some separations, they don't always separate into the same components. So wine tannins are very dynamic. They're always changing. Some join and separate as larger molecules. Others grow smaller. One thing is for certain, though, the tannins in an aged bottle of wine are molecularly different than the tannins you'll find in the wine as it goes into the bottle. Though the specifics of tannin activity are still an emerging area of wine research, which, disclaimer, means that all our understanding of tannins could completely change in the next couple of years, the current research suggests that the properties of tannins have to do with, for lack of a better word, the stickiness of tannins. When they are first released from the plant, they want to stick to all sorts of things, especially proteins. And when you try a highly tannic wine, it's actually drawing out the microscopic proteins in your saliva, and it binds to them. It binds. And that creates the drying sensation that you feel from tannins. Tannins are part of plant defense mechanisms. If you're a random animal and you're going about your day, 
and you take a bite of a tannin-rich plant, and a chemical reaction starts in your mouth and completely dries out your mouth from all the protein bonding happening, your first Darwinian reaction is to spit that thing out. Unless you really, really like Amaro. As tannins have more and more time to stick and unstick themselves to molecules, eventually they will become a little less, well, sticky as they form slightly stronger bonds with proteins and other molecules and the oxygen that slowly finds its way in through a porous closure. The closest analogy I can think of in the visible world is like taking a post-it note and sticking and unsticking it very fast. Eventually, it will pick up enough tiny pieces of dust to stop it from being sticky. And in the process, it may even rip into smaller pieces. Or it might grow as it picks up detritus. But when you try and stick it to something at the end of this process, it will not stick. Just like a very old tannin, or a tannin that has had enough time to form stronger bonds and become less sticky, it will not draw out and stick to the molecules in your mouth. Aged tannins, essentially, become less reactive and less likely to initiate a chemical reaction with your saliva. So they feel softer. So aged tannins, they're still there. They just don't want to dance with your spit. Because they've been dancing for years. And frankly, they're tired. And they're ready to die. Death by hydrochloric acid in a stomach full of gastric juices. But tannins don't want you to feel sorry for them. As long as you're not drinking that Sagrantino in its release year, most tannins will live a long and happy social life, forming and breaking, and forming and breaking, and reforming bonds with other molecules. Keep listening to hear more from one winery who shepherds their tannins through long lives with plenty of interesting library releases. I've been lucky enough to try some amazing wines while traveling over the years. Unfortunately, I've found that some of those same wines are really hard to find here in the United States. Whenever I run into trouble finding a favorite bottle, I go to idealwine.com and they have what I'm looking for. Whether it is a hard-to-source bottle of Burgundy or a micro-production natural wine like I Need the Sun by Domaine de Miroir, I know there's a chance that Ideal Wine might have it available. And Ideal Wine's entire Paris inventory is available to American customers with just a click. The process is seamless, the site is easy to use, and orders are shipped directly to you. Head over to IdealWine.com, that's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com, to see for yourself what you could be drinking. Andy Erickson on the show, who's co-owner of Favia and also a consultant for a number of different wineries. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Nice to have you here. So you grew up in New Jersey. I did not grow up in New Jersey, but I was born in New Jersey. And uh, it's funny. I always joke that that's one of my claims to fame. My father was a, uh, a graduate student getting his PhD at Rutgers University. And uh, he was early in the um, sort of study of genetics. So he has a PhD in uh, molecular biology. But I grew up in Indiana. 
So in a small town called Elkhart, Indiana, it's a manufacturing town, but it's also in the middle of agriculture, which is one of the things that sort of brought me to wine is I love the uh, agricultural aspect of growing grapes and making wine. But yeah, I grew up uh, very close to the Notre Dame campus. My father was a professor of uh, microbiology at Notre Dame. And so grew up, you know, in the laboratory and going to sports and, you know, living, we lived on a lake, which was beautiful, a little tiny lake um, outside of town and, but surrounded by cornfields and soy fields and very much in the country. It's definitely that part of the country when you fly over going coast to coast, it's, it's checkerboards of cornfields and soy fields. We actually, in our town, it's not a joke that the only hill in the town was the overpass over Highway 80. So it was very flat and very uh, gridded off. We had County Road 246810 going one way and then County Road 13579 going the other way. So uh, very much a Midwestern country boy. But then I I moved to uh, Massachusetts when I was in high school. My dad jumped on the biotech bandwagon, and so we moved to Framingham, Massachusetts. The Boston area was a big center for biotech. Exactly, yeah. So Framingham, which is just outside of Boston, still is a big high-tech hub, computer stuff, and biotech. And my dad started a couple of companies there. And so I went to high school there, public high school. A um, little bit of a challenge being a Midwestern boy transplanted to uh, suburban Boston, Mass., as you can imagine quickly lost my Midwestern accent <laughs> and, uh, but sports were a really big deal for me and ended up falling in with some good friends and ended up going to Tufts university, which is just outside of Boston. So you stayed in that area for a bit. I did. I really fell in love with new England and Boston. I mean, being from the middle of the country, I always say Elkhart, Indiana is a great place to be from because it really is an amazing place to grow up. People have great morals and family oriented. But as soon as I saw what else there was in the world, I was just, my eyes were open to so many things. And, uh, so I did spend seven years in the Boston area, loved it. Great years for the Celtics and the Red Sox. And, uh, that was a lot of fun. And then just going to college in Massachusetts is amazing. So many schools, people from all over the world. It was a lot of fun. I actually started pre-med because it's a funny story. My orthodontist when I was in high school, he went to Tufts and he had the most amazing life. He lived in Nantucket four days a week and he would fly to Framingham three days a week in his own little plane. And he had his little practice there. And I thought, man, this is one of the coolest guys I've ever met. I got to check out Tufts University. So I went there, fell in love with the campus. You know, I wanted to be in science because my dad was in science. And so I started out in that, but I was not really passionate about what you're doing you're not going to go that far. Just because your dad did it didn't mean that you were going to love it. Right. And I, and it's funny. I went to Thanksgiving dinner at a friend's house in New Jersey. Um, I think it was my freshman year. And, and he was also pre-med, but his dad was a doctor. And he was super into organic chemistry and, and chemistry and everything. And I was just sort of skating along. And his dad, just over a glass of wine, I think at Thanksgiving dinner, said, you know, if, you, if you're really not committed to dedicating your life to something like this, then you can't really even do it. <laughs> and that stuck with me. And I, before I said, you know what, that's really true. And I'm not really that into this. And so I went back to school and Tufts is also a special place because they have the Fletcher school of law and diplomacy, which is 
it's a very much a hub of international relations and political science and they have many courses and programs abroad and all this and and also i was i was playing rugby on the rugby team and so i was making friends from all over the world and particularly latin america i had a lot of friends from south america and central america and and they were also a lot of amazing well amazing a lot of interesting things happening in latin america in terms of politics i mean there were dictatorships in Chile and Argentina. There was war in Central America and all this stuff. And here I am meeting people from those places. And I thought, this is pretty interesting. So I started taking classes and ended up majoring in uh, political science and international relations. And and so it was, it was, for me, I would stay up late reading about all this stuff and writing papers. And it was just super interesting. And I just sort of abandoned the idea of getting a degree in something that I would necessarily have a career in. Although I was drawn by the idea of being a diplomat and living abroad and traveling. And so I, you know, through these studies, I ended up going on a summer program that Tufts has in Geneva, Switzerland, where you, you study at the UN at all the different uh, NGOs and you meet people and see what they're doing. And you live with a family in France, just across the border in the Haute-Savoie near Talloir, which is a beautiful village. You know, it's on the route of the Tour de France. It's on this big lake, Lake Annecy. This little city of Annecy is just, it's beautiful. And so I arrived there, you know, what was I, 19 years old, and uh, studied and learned a little bit of French and lived with this family that were amazing people. They were just such bon vivants. You know, they loved life. They would, we would carry the dinner table outside and, cook outside. They had this outdoor hearth and we would just, you know, cook. And then crazy thing is it was a father and son team. So the father, I think was in his fifties and his son lived nearby who was in his late twenties probably. And, and they were always doing projects around the house. They were building things. And, and so they had built this underground wine cellar underneath this outdoor hearth area. So you'd literally go back in the back yard basically. And there was a fireplace and a cooking area and then some stairs that just went down into the ground and you walk in there and there was a concrete room with probably three or four thousand bottles of wine and it wasn't fancy wine it was just village wines the father was actually um a salesperson for apple this is way in the early days of apple computer and he would he would leave in early in the week with his car loaded up with computer stuff and he'd come back at the end of the week with his car loaded up with wine and these were like shiners and just village wines and stuff. But they had, they had the cellar and I just thought, how cool is that? I mean, we would go down we'd pick out a few bottles of wine and we'd just cook into the night and just talk late at night. And my French got better as we went into the night, you know, and, and, uh, this was also, it's funny because it was also the Reagan years. And so it just seemed almost to a person that everyone that was working at the UN seemed completely unsatisfied with their job and felt like they really weren't making a difference. And, and, you know, I came back from that summer thinking, all right, I'm not going to be a diplomat. It doesn't really sound that interesting anymore, but I had the seed planted in the back of my mind that like, what an amazing way to live. I mean, to be connected to food and wine like that and just being outdoors and in nature and everything. It was just there, and I, I. But at the same time, I had no idea that wine as a vocation was an option. So I came back, and I just thought, okay, I want to do something creative. I want to do something tangible. And I also moved to San Francisco. So back up a little bit. While I was at Tufts, my parents moved uh, to California. Oh, okay. And when I was very young, before we moved to Indiana, 
uh, we had lived in La Jolla, which is in Southern California. And this is back when it was a little village, really. I was like between the ages of one and three, I was just a, a baby really. And my, you know, my first memories are from that area, just being close to the beach and everything. But, um, my mom, we grew up in Indiana and my mother would always say, don't get too used to it here. Cause we're moving back to La Jolla. So I grew up from like age three to 15 or 16 when we moved to Massachusetts thinking, okay, well, I guess we're going back to California sometime, but we never really did until I went to college. Right. So moved to California after Tufts, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I actually had some, uh, some interviews lined up in Manhattan. I was at that time thinking I want to be a writer. I was into creative writing and I had some interviews at magazines lined up and I, I had a potential internship lined up. And one of my buddies who was going to go to Columbia grad school, um, we had even looked at an apartment like on 116th street, you know, in Harlem. And that was going to be, you know, my place. We're like, all right, we're going to do this thing. Move out to California. My parents were living two blocks from the beach. It took me about two days to look at myself and say, am I really going to go back to Manhattan? So, uh, I just spent the summer making new friends and hanging around. And it was pretty hilarious because towards the end of the summer, I got one of those morning talks from my mom, like, you know, you better get a job by sundown or <laughs> kind of thing. And my sister, who's two years older than me, uh, was living in San Francisco and I had been there a couple times and really loved the city, but I hadn't really, you know, put a real foot in the water, but I, I just called my sister and said, Hey, I'm, I'm coming up there. I'm loading all my stuff in my car and I'm driving up tomorrow. So I, I literally did that. And I, and this is way before emails and cell phones. I mean, this is in 1989. So 1989, late summer, I show up in San Francisco and I had called a couple of friends from Tufts. And this is pretty funny. We used to have something we called the Guam factor. So the Guam factor was no matter what you thought you'd be doing next year, you might end up in Guam, which, you know, it's just a funny thing you do when you're 21 years old. But I called a couple friends' houses to see where they were. One was from New Jersey. The other one's from Orange County to find out what they were doing. And sure enough, they were both on their way to move to San Francisco. So I just literally showed up at these guys' apartment that they had just signed a lease on and just like rolled in my futon. And uh, we ended up having a great time. I worked in an advertising agency for a few years. And, uh, you know, we were young guys having a great time in San Francisco and a few things happened. One was I got a job in an advertising agency, just kind of fell into it. And one of our clients was Hubline, which is a big company that, you know, imports spirits. And, and at that time they owned BV and they owned Inglenook. It was still Inglenook in Rutherford up in Napa Valley. And, uh, among other things that they own, we used to go up for meetings and these would be really mundane budget meetings and things, uh, in Rutherford. And I'd be staring out the window, looking at guys digging holes in the ground and pruning and stuff, thinking, you know, what the hell am I doing in here? I should be out there with those guys. And so, you know, all of a sudden I, and I also used to go up to Healdsburg and Sonoma County and ride my bike. And I love, I just love that part of the world and, and this part of the world. And I, I still do. I just, I travel a lot, but whenever I come home to Northern California, I just, I just want to kiss the ground. I just think it's the greatest place on earth. But with wine at the same time, you know, so here we are in our young twenties and, and we lived in North beach kind of right up the street from, I think it was cost plus world market. And we used to go down there and 
Chilean and Argentine wines back then, $1.99. So we used to load up on wines and just start learning about wines, you know, inexpensive wines and stuff. So that combination and going up to wine country and the fact that I already had this interest in Latin America and what was going on there, I just had this completely harebrained scheme that I was going to go to South America and work on a vineyard and winery, learn Spanish, travel, and I did it. I, I left uh, in 1993. Where'd you go? So I started, uh, first I went to Guatemala and I did a Spanish program there for a few weeks. And then I spent the next five months traveling all the way to almost to the southern tip of Chile and mostly by hitchhiking or by bus or train or boat. Only a couple of flights to kind of get through Brazil, but what an amazing five months. I mean, it was, it was really awesome. I mean, we, when I think about it now, I can't believe it. I mean, we, um, I was with a friend from college. We, we made our way through Central America. We actually hitchhiked across the border between Venezuela and Colombia, which even back then was probably one of the least safe places you could ever do something like that. And we, then we went, we took a bus to the very source of the Amazon, the Rio Branco, which is where Venezuela, Guyana, and Brazil meet. We ended up in this little village and we, we had to wait for like two or three days to get on a boat that was headed to Manaus, which is in the middle of the Amazon. And it was so funny. There were these other kids, the same age, there were a couple English guys and some, I think they were Norwegian girls that were, here we are in this village of like 200 people in the jungle. And we finally were like, okay, we're obviously doing the same thing. We should just travel together. So we ended up, this was just like a short 10 day leg of the trip. We ended up like going on a boat down the Amazon and exploring a little bit together. But that was kind of the stuff I did like over these five months, it was incredible. But I, so I'd also had a couple of phone numbers through Augustin Huneus Jr. Who's my age. We graduated in the same year. We ended up having the same circle of friends in San Francisco and he, um, his family still, they're very much involved in, in Chile. They were just starting, I think the Veramonte winery and he had a few contacts down there. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to end up in Chile and work in a vineyard and winery. So I traveled by the time I got to Buenos Aires, turns out I had a couple of friends from Tufts who were living in Buenos Aires and they were like, there's no way you're going to Chile. You're staying here. We're taking to Mendoza. You're going to meet some people. And Drove out there, ended up meeting the whole team from Catena, which is, this is before they even had the wine called Catena, they, but they, you know, they own many wineries down there. Showed up and they said, well, what do you, what do you want to do? What are you doing here? I said, well, I just want to spend a whole year and do everything. And so it was crazy. They were, they just said, well, right, well when do you want to start? You don't get a lot of opportunities like that to see a whole year at a place. Oh, I mean, it was such an incredible way to start my, my career really. And so I. I still had not made it to the south of Chile where I wanted to go. So I said, well, wait, you got to give me about a month. So I spent the next month sort of completing my trip. And then I ended up in Mendoza. I stayed almost a year. So I was, it was the middle of winter when I showed up. So I pruned for six weeks or so. I mean, every morning waking up, walking out in the fields at sunrise, we'd build a fire out there with the cuttings, everybody would warm their hands because it was freezing cold and pruning hard like every day for six weeks, maybe even two months. I mean, it was a long time. And then, then they would move me to another farm and I would, I ended up planting new vineyards out in an area called Tupungato, which is a 
an amazing valley that's right at the foot of the Andes. I mean, it was before some of these vineyards started going in. So what was that like 20, 25 years ago? Cherry trees, apple orchards, things like that. So vineyards were just starting to go in there. I ended up living there for three or four months, planting vineyards, training vines. It was pretty funny because the foreman would drive out from Mendoza City, which was about an hour, hour and a half to each of these places I'd be at. And I felt like every time he drove out, he was kind of waiting for me to say, all right, that's it. I'm done. So you think he was giving you the hard stuff to see if you would wash out? Well, it's just hard stuff, right? So I was out there, but so cool. I mean, I ended up living on one of the farms where where we were pruning. Everybody that lived in this little village worked on the vineyard because it was a huge vineyard. And there were only two guys in the village that had TVs. I'm sounding like an old guy now. This is way before cell phones, email, all that stuff. So, and these were the qualifiers for the World Cup were happening. And so we would, everyone would work hard all day. And then when there was a soccer game, it was awesome. Like the whole village would show up at one of these houses and we'd, you know, we'd watch soccer and just play cards and drink beer. And I, my Spanish got really good. And, and it was just, it was an amazing, amazing time. Why do you think you excelled at that? I mean, that sounds difficult to me. I mean, not the camaraderie part, but the the pruning for a couple of months when you've never really done it before. I don't even know if I excelled. I just wake. I woke yeah. up in the morning and I just showed up. I mean, that's that's how you start, right? And so uh, I definitely did not excel. These guys were working much faster than I was, but just to really work side by side with them and see what they do. I mean, what a what an incredible opportunity for me because even now, I mean, the guys that work with us in the vineyard, those are the guys that really make things happen. I mean, we get all the credit, you know, the winemakers for sort of pouring the glass at the table as the final product. But the fact is there's so many people doing really hard work to grow those grapes. So for me to work with those guys was a great opportunity. So then I ended up at the end of my, it was really about 10 months, at the end of the 10 months, working in the winery during harvest, but, you know, low guy on the totem pole, I was like working the pH meter and weighing trucks when they came in and cleaning things up. And, uh, it was then that I did, I met Paul Hobbs because he was consulting for Katana then. And, uh, but I didn't even know that when I, when I showed up there, but Paul is great guy, very generous person. And he, um, you know, just really from meeting me for like a day or two said, Hey, you know, let me know when you're back in California. I'll see if I can find something for you. So arrived back in California. This was a summer of 1994 i took some classes at uc davis i got a house in saint helena with a couple guys and uh paul helped me get a job at stag's leap wine cellar so that was harvest of 1994 i worked two harvests one in argentina and one here and then yeah i mean it's just been pretty awesome since then to be a part of what's happened in napa valley over the past 20 plus years so arrived here um, worked harvest and then i just was so lucky that the woman that was working in the lab at Stag's Leap Wine Cellars said, hey, you should call John Consgard at Newton Vineyard because one of the guys there is leaving. I didn't even know who that guy was. You know, I'd, I'd heard of Newton Vineyard, but called over there, went and, uh, you know, interviewed with John. And John is just very thoughtful, very philosophical person, very connected to what he's doing. And Anyway, I showed up for this interview and not really knowing anything, ended up talking to John for half an hour, 40 minutes. And then, and this is for a job, which was going to pay like $8 an hour to scrub floors. Right. So ended up 
John's like, oh, you know, I think it'll work out. And then I didn't hear from him for like two weeks. And it's so funny. My mother came to visit and I'm living in this little, because, so this is before I got my house with my two buddies, but I was living by myself in this little cabin up on Atlas Peak that had only a wood burning stove. My mother comes to visit and she says, uh, you know, what the hell are you doing? And I had just had this interview. I'm like pining away for this job, you know, waiting for the phone to ring for a job, literally to like clean and scrub things for almost no money. And here my parents had just scrimped and saved to send me to a great university. My mother's like, what the hell are you doing here? And anyway, I did get the job. I worked for John for a year and he's still a great mentor and friend. And, uh, you know, just to work for someone like that, who, and I was even one step removed. I mean, I, there were two assistant winemakers, um, from New Zealand, Blair Walter, who I don't know if you've met, who's still a friend, although I, I rarely see him cause he's on the other side of the world, but, and he has the same philosophy of John and, you know, it's very much, you know, natural winemaking. You work hard in the vineyard, the grapes come in, you rely on native yeasts, you're not filtering the wine, you're not really moving the wine around too much. And so you just really become connected to the wines that way. And, uh, you know, John, I had, you know, I wasn't working day to day with him, but every time we, we met and tasted wines together and worked in the cellar, I just thought, you know, I mean, these were my formative years, you know, I mean, this was, I had very little experience. And so to work with someone like that and really sort of form that connection with farming and with natural techniques and a connection to, you know, France and what was going on back in France and Bordeaux and Burgundy, you know, Michel Roland was consulting for Newton and, and John was really one of Michel's first, you know, sort of protégés. I wouldn't even call him that, but Michel and John had a great way of working together. What'd you pick up from Michel Roland? Tasting things. I mean, that's one thing that John and Michel always, you know, stress is, you need to pull out all the wines from the cellar and taste through them regularly. So you see how they're developing and you see how the wines are moving in a direction and how it's connected to what you did in the vineyard. And with Michel, blending the wines as well has become something that I really love doing. And so even though, uh, with, let's say even with a single vineyard wine, like we make for Favio, we have very small production wines and some of them are from specific parcels but you may pick the grapes from that parcel over a number of days. There may be a couple different varieties. So during harvest, really, you're, you're trying to be in tune with what's going on in the vineyard. And so, you know, certain parts of the vineyard are going to be ripe one day. That's going to be one of your wines that you make. Different variety, you know, ripe on a different day, or maybe you're going to co-ferment things. But anyway, you end up after harvest with all these components. And those are really the colors that are on your palette that you're going to use to, I mean, it sounds cheesy, but to really paint the picture that you want people to see. So, and it was great with John. Like I would, I'd be the guy down in the cave racking the barrels to put the blend together. So I would really just get, you know, the, the list of barrels that were supposed to go into the blend. And John would always say, make sure you taste every single barrel before you put it in the blend. So I remember once one day I'm there and we were, you know, back then the, the Newton unfiltered Chardonnay was the big thing, right? So, and unfiltered wines, I mean, you have to be careful because what you put in the bottle, that's it. You're not removing anything before it goes in the bottle. So I tasted through all these, these barrels and it was a pretty big blend. So I had a couple of barrels that I just thought were a little funky, you know, and I went upstairs and went into John's office and said, Hey, you know, I'm not really sure about these two barrels. And he comes down into the cave and 
And, you know, let's be truthful. These barrels were a little funky. <laughs> and John tasted them and said, ah, it's complexity. It's going to make the wine so much better. And so that really, I mean, that's, that's kind of cool because you, and with working with Michelle too, it's the same thing. I mean, you want the wines to have many layers. And so sometimes you have a wine that on its own tastes really odd, but it's just like cooking when you put in just a little bit of something, it can create an amazing flavor sensation. And so. Do you think it tasted odd because of long contact with the lees or maybe. Well, you know, let's say maybe it was high VA or something. Maybe the barrel didn't get sulfured in time. And so the, the VA was a little high. And so like all the other barrels would taste nice and clean. And this one had a, we would call it a lifted note, you know, or John with the reds, he always liked to say there's some Euro funk in here, you know, like a little bit of Brett or something. But sure enough, I mean, a little bit of that in the in the wine just creates something where you just want to keep going back to it. So now with what I do, I'm always looking to add those layers into the wine. I mean, not necessarily by forgetting to sulfur a barrel in the cellar, <laughs> but, you know, making a lot of small lots and, you know, doing different things in the winery so that when we put the wine back together in the end, it just has a lot of nuance and a lot of difference. And uh, so it's just, it's it's pretty awesome to have worked with so many great people over the years. I mean, I, I do say again, just arriving when I did to this Valley in 1994, I mean, I'm just lucky because so many things have happened and I, you know, sure. I get up early and I work hard and everything. And I, and I've been able to work with great people, but sometimes just being there at the right time is, is 80, 90% of it. Right. So, you know, now I'm mentoring other people and I'm being handed the keys to some of the really amazing things that happen in this Valley. And, uh, it's really a gift. It's great. And John introduced you to your wife. Yeah. Indirectly. It's pretty funny. So Annie Favia, my wife, uh, she arrived here, I guess maybe like six months before I did. So her first degrees were in French literature and art history. And she, she has a, a very long story as well, a very rich story, but she came to wine because she wanted to work in wine and she wanted to work for a woman. And so she was connected to Suwa Newton. She came to Newton in 1993, ended up working for Suwa. Who was Peter Newton's wife. Peter Newton's wife. Yeah. And she was really running the show with the winery back then. And John really took Annie under his wing. I mean, Annie spoke French. And so every time, you know, someone came from, France to visit, you know, Annie would be the interpreter and she sort of became, you know, one of John's favorite people in the organization. This is before I got there. The funny thing is when I was interviewing for this job to go scrub the floors up there, <laughs> people would say, oh, there's this really cute girl up there. You got to, you know, track her down. And so I remember going up there and looking around, you know, I'm up there to interview. I'm looking around like, where, where, I don't see this, you know, I don't see anybody there. Well, she had, she had already left to go do something else. She was very into rock climbing. She, she was rock climbing and she was into surfing. She moved to Southern California and to Hawaii to go surfing under the guise of learning how to be a sommelier with Randy Caparosa, who was working at Roy's in Honolulu. I know that was her, that was her reason for being there. Really, it was just to surf. But anyway, I missed her by a few months, but fast forward about a year, I come home from work one day and I was sharing this great little house in St. Helena with a couple of buddies and show up uh, from work at the end of the day. And 
there's Annie at our house. She just showed up for dinner because she was good friends with my roommate who had been in St. Helena for a few years. So just we ended up meeting that way. And she was actually on her way to move to Hawaii when I met her. So she was gone. We we obviously hit it off. We started writing to each other and I used to send her mixtapes. This is awesome to be able to say that on a podcast, but I did send some pretty awesome mixtapes, which which probably sealed the deal because she ended up coming back a few months later. And uh, and she then started working for Kathy Corison uh, in the cellar, worked for Kathy for several years. And uh, she's, she jokes that being in the cold, wet cellar made her want to be outside in the vineyards. And she met David Abreu. Kathy used to get fruit from David Abreu. And she ended up being David Abreu's viticulturist for 12 years. So many great vineyards, you know, from the ground up. And so, yeah, she's a great business partner and life partner. What does that look like, developing an Abreu vineyard? Well, this is where Annie should be sitting next to the mic right now. But, I mean, David is very good at choosing sites. So, David grew up in Napa. So, and he's a farmer at heart, very much a farmer. And he's a guy that, it's just amazing. You could hike through the forest with David and judging by the natural vegetation that's coming out of the ground, he can pretty much tell you what the soils would be like. And sure enough, when you dig a hole and start analyzing the soil, he's pretty much spot on. So he, you know, he was able to find some virgin ground for that are now some of the most amazing vineyards in Napa Valley. And this was back in the eighties and early nineties. So, you know, he obviously has a very technical team behind him to come in and get into the specifics of what goes on. But Annie is very meticulous and very, you know, into making sure things are done the right way. And David very much appreciates that. So they just, they fell in together and just became like, you know, two peas in a pod for years. I mean, they would work lockstep together, developing these vineyards and managing these vineyards. So it was a good team for a long time. And what was your next move? While I was at Newton, so don't forget, I had just come from South America where I was working and uh, a couple people said, hey, you need to meet this French guy in town who's starting a cooperage in Napa, you know, the barrel making facility, which was pretty random, right? So I meet this guy, his name is Alain Fouquet. I mean, he's a legend in the, in the barrel business. He was a master cooper in Bordeaux. He came over to California just when the California wine scene was really starting to happen, I think in the late seventies, early eighties and really fell in love with California and started importing French barrels to California. Anyway, that's another story, but he approached me and said, Hey, I'm really looking at possibly opening a cooperage in Chile. Would you be interested in, in being a part of this? And at that time I thought, well, yeah, that would be really cool. So the idea was I would come on board, work with him for a while in California, and then move to Chile and start this small cooperage, which, I mean, that sounded like a pretty cool adventure. So unfortunately, very shortly after I started, he had a stroke and, uh, thankfully now he's doing well, but I mean, he really was not doing well. And at that time he was the entire company here. I mean, he had come years before he set up shop here. And so everyone in Cognac where the company was based basically just let him do his thing. So as soon as he was not doing well, you know, they all flew out here and just sort of 
took over the the company and everything was put on hold and and so I sort of had to regroup plus I here I am I had just fallen in love and was you know going to sort of change my focus and stay here and uh ended up applying to UC Davis and uh went back I have a master's degree from UC Davis which is great it, it was a two and a half year deal so Annie and I actually took turns going back to school um, I kept working while she went back to school and then she was working with David while I went back to school. And, and so I did go and study, um, I studied phenolic development and grape skins and seeds and how that translates into wine. And it's a lot of organic chemistry and biochemistry and all that. And, and so I have a very, maybe too extensive knowledge of that kind of thing, but you know, what's great is that I think I understanding something on that deep of a level, even if you don't necessarily need to pull from that is just so helpful. So when there's an issue, I think I have a good understanding of what's going on. And at the same time, however, when I went back to school and even before, when I was at Newton, I had connected with this tasting group and these were all older guys. You know, it was uh, Bob Levy, Tom Rinaldi, Michael Havens, Jack Cole, a bunch of people from sort of the generation before me. And I don't even know how I got into this group, but we would taste pretty darn good wines from all over the world once a month. And, you know, listening to these guys talk about the wines and speculate as to, you know, what was going on when the wines were made or what the season was like was really amazing for me and really, you know, helped me think deeper about what I was doing. And at the same time, Bob Levy, when I went back to school, said, hey, you need to call me when you're done with your degree because we've got some things going on. And, uh, this was, he was the winemaker at Maryvale, but also behind the scenes, uh, Harlan estate was starting. And so when I finished at Davis, I called Bob and said, Hey, you know, I'm done. <laughs> and, uh, he said, Oh, great. Come on up and see what's going on. So I, I went up to what's now, it's now actually the bond winery back then we called it the West winery, um, where they were making the Harlan estate wines and the bond wines and I ended up working with Bob for not quite a year. I mean, it was an, it was an amazing short stint, um, as his assistant. And, uh, this was in 2000 and into 2001. And that was really cool because we, we had, you know, two wineries under construction and, and Bob is very meticulous person and very, um, very unlike John Consgard, who, uh, is more into just the feel and sort of letting things unfold. I mean, Bob, wants to control everything that he can control and is very into uh, comparing you know, seasons and data and all that stuff, which I think is also really interesting. Um, got to work with him. And meanwhile, Annie is still working for David Abreu and David's managing the vineyards at, at Harlan and also at many other great properties, including uh, Staglin. And at that time, the Staglins were just breaking ground on their new winery, which is now the Staglin winery looking for someone to come in full time. And, uh, I mean, God bless them. They, they took a chance on me. I was a young guy with some experience and, uh, and ended up working with them in 2001, 2002 and into 2003 as their winemaker. And, uh, that was a really amazing stretch because the winery was designed. I mean, I didn't design the winery, but I got to outfit the winery. I got to oversee the finishing of the construction 
And at the same time, we were making the wine. So I always think it's amazing to be making wines with a with kind of a bootstrap situation where you're kind of having to figure it out. Um, it's also nice to make wine in a, in a great finished winery. But when you when you're sort of dealing with a situation where you don't even know where to unload the tractor because the ground is all ripped apart is a pretty interesting kind of situation. So worked there 2001, 2002. Which are strong vintages for that wine. I think. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I'm really still excited about those wines. I mean, I, I have a little stash, which I try to keep my hands off of, but, um, I love, I love both of those vintages and, uh, was still sort of formulating my, you know, my style and everything. So I would say, what would you say that is? Well, it's sort of a combination of the different people I've worked with. Bob and John, basically. I mean, it yeah, feels Bob and John like and, Bob. Yeah. And, and you know, I had gone to Davis too. So I had a strong technical background and I had worked with Bob who's very into, you know, being very precise. But in the back of my mind, I have this voice of John saying, you know, Hey, you just need to let things happen. And so I think there's always there's still with me there's that combination of during the growing season trying to be be very precise in the vineyard but then as you're picking the grapes and as the wines start being made I mean just sort of trying to take a step back and and see what happens and also knowing that even though one or two of the wines that evolve during harvest may you know let's say have a higher VA or maybe you know a higher pH or something where when you look at the numbers you would maybe get scared knowing that that's going to be a component and add a certain texture to the wine or, you know, elevate something in the wine is really interesting. And that side comes from John and also from Michelle Roland, who I still work with a fair amount. Was he consulting with you at Stagel? He was. Yeah. And it's just by random chance really that I end up sort of in the background. I mean, back at Newton Vineyard, he was there, but I never, except for saying hello, never really talked to him. And then, at Harlan, same thing. I mean, I would, I said hello to him. We walked the vineyard a couple times together, but I wasn't really sitting in on the, on the blending of the wines there. But at Staglin, that's when I started having an active relationship with Michelle. And, you know, what I love about that is it's like having a, if you're a musician and you have like a session musician who comes in and just once in a while just sits with you and, brings out something different in you. I think that's great. And so it's up to me to bring the components to the table. I mean, I know Michelle gets bashed by some people who think that he advocates for a certain style of wine, which is not really true. I mean, he just takes what's there on the spice rack and tries to put together what people are going to be tasting. And so, you know, and even now when we're, you know, 2015, 2014, 13, he and I together and and a lot of people that I work with and have been in the Valley for a while. And, and thankfully, a lot of the young guys coming up too are now really dialing things back in terms of the ripeness and the richness of the wines, which... What's that play out know, to as a bricks thing? So my goal with the wines is to be able to harvest the grapes and make the wine without adding anything to the must, right? So... Which is John style. That's which John's is John's style. style, yeah. And I would say it's most people's style. I mean, let's say you add yeast. I mean, that's you're just fermenting the, the fruit, right? But if the grapes get beyond a certain ripeness, the yeast are going to die off and the wine is not going to finish fermenting. And that's when you run into problems and you have to like 
intervene in a way that I would argue you shouldn't have to intervene and you lose the reflection of the site in the wines, which is really important to me. And so I would say around 25 bricks, you can still make wines that you can make naturally and are going to finish. And sure, they're going to have relatively high alcohol, but there's a lot of chatter about alcohol. But if a wine's in balance, it tastes great. And high alcohol wines can be in balance. I mean, look at Chateauneuf du Pop. I mean, those wines are delicious. They're complex. They're Some of them are 16% alcohol, right? So, And in Napa, if you want balance, we've been pretty blessed the past few years with not too warm of vintages, but you know we have a lot of sunshine. The fruit gets ripe. Um, you're going to have ripe flavors in the wine. I would argue that a more natural reflection of the site around here is a riper wine that has a little higher alcohol. But again, that's part of the deal. That's part of the deal. Yeah, I mean that's are. part of the terroir. But again, if you can, if you can harvest the grapes and let them ferment, and that's it. That's a victory for me. So I would say, you know, around 14.8, 15% alcohol, you know, you're in the zone or lower. I mean, now I'm very excited to be working at Mayakamas where there's a history of something completely different, right? I mean, Bob Travers, who made those wines for 45 years and who I'm really lucky to have had some great contact with during the transition. And he does come to visit and he's pretty excited about what we're doing. I mean, Bob jokes that when he started making wine up there in 1968, everybody bashed him for picking too ripe and being too extractive and making the wines too big. And then when the last wines that he made in the late 2000s, you know, 2009, 10, 11, he was being bashed for picking too early and being too gentle and stuff. And he would say that he didn't change anything during those 45 years. So I think um, there's a whole range of flavors and styles that you can get when you're making wine in the style that I just described, like when you're harvesting grapes, fermenting the wine, and then presenting that in a glass. It can be 13% alcohol. It could be 15% alcohol. It could be very tannic, very acidic, which when they're young is kind of tough, but age beautifully well. Or they can be very lush at the beginning and generous. And I argue that even some of those wines that people say don't age still age very well. So there's that whole style. But I mean, for me, that's that's the exciting part. But then letting the grapes go, it's very easy in California to let the grapes go, you know, to 28 bricks and then pick the grapes and then kind of work some magic and have it be, you know, what you want. But for me, I, I don't know, it doesn't, it doesn't excite me. I guess it just brings me back to my connection to the farming side, which is my favorite side of making wine, which is being in the field and farming the grapes and trying to get the vines into balance so that when the grapes come in, it's very low tech. So two vintages at Staglin and then what happened? So life happened, right? Yeah. So, uh, Annie and I got married in 1998, which was, of course, the best thing that ever happened to me. And we had all, we had been making wine in our garage together pretty much since Annie moved back from Hawaii. And so pretty awesome. We served our one of our first Pinot Noirs that we made at our wedding in 1998. But, 
you know, then we both went back to school. And in 2001, my first daughter was born. 2003, my second daughter was born. So that really changes your outlook, right? I mean, here we are. We're working for other people. We're working for great people. We have great careers. But, you know, when you start to have a family, you start to think, you know, what are we doing with this? Where are we going with this? And, you know, Annie and I had our own philosophies forming and our own vision of what we wanted to do. And so in 2003, we decided to take a chance and start our own wines. And I was being approached by people also for consulting work, which is really not the right word. I mean, it's more of just being sort of a shared winemaker. I mean, there are quite a few people in Napa who make wine for several wineries. And I was being approached by people like that. So we just took a chance and started the Favia Wines. And I took on a couple of consulting projects. So Ovid, as it's now known, was... On Pritchard Hill. On Pritchard Hill was the first project that I took on. And that is such a breathtaking site. And Annie and and David Abreu, um, his team had developed the vineyard. And it's... Um, for anyone who hasn't been up there, I recommend going to visit if you're into terroir and into extreme viticulture because this is perched out on the top of Pritchard Hill. You know, it's only 15 acres planted so far, although over the years, maybe some more vineyard will be planted. But I just remember going up there with Annie even before I had met um, Mark and Dana, the proprietors, and just thinking, oh my God, what is going on up here? I mean, it was gigantic red rocks being blasted and moved around and cleared. And, and, you know, fast forward a couple of years in 2003, I was introduced to Mark and Dana who own Ovid through John Consgard because they are classical music aficionados as is John who founded and now still runs the Napa Valley Chamber Music Society, which we're patrons of and Annie and I are, you know, it's one thing we love to do in the wintertime is go to those concerts. So we had met Mark and Dana through that socially, and they invited me up to have a look at the site and talk to me about, you know, what it might be like to take on a project like that. And it was, it was pretty exciting. So yeah, unfortunately I did have to leave Staglin, although it was just one of those forks in the road and I had to take it to be a, you know, Yogi Bearish. They, but, um, <laughs> but they didn't want you to do consulting. You know, you wouldn't have been able to follow that path. Is that what you're saying? Like to follow yeah. the path. You I mean, we had some difficult discussions and in the end they decided that they didn't want that. And for me, I mean, it was really, to be honest, it was pretty tough decision to make, but I felt like I had to go in that direction if I wanted to see myself doing, you know, quote unquote, my own thing and really sort of carving a path. So I did that. It was a bit risky. Um, Because you'd been pretty lauded for your work at Staglin, right? Critically. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, it was an exciting couple of years. We, we really just, and I say we, because it's, it's a team and it's the family and it's the vineyard crew and everybody. I mean, we, we took on the challenge to really take things to a new level. And I felt like we did and we had, and, uh, but at the same time, you know, I knew it wasn't my winery and I knew, you know, fast forwarding a decade or two, it wasn't really, you know, going to make me completely satisfied just to be doing that one thing. So 
took on the Ovid project. Uh, Did you talk project. to anyone about that? Did you run that by any mentors or anything? I mean, like that seems like a mature decision to make for a young guy. You're still a young yeah, guy. Yeah, I mean, I did run it by all my mentors and they all basically said, I guess you got to do this. I yeah. And, you know, what else do you say to somebody like that? So, and pretty quickly, you know, David Abreu had a few small things going on. Dancing Hairs Vineyard, which is still one of my clients and they've become dear friends of ours as well and great supporters of ours with our Favia wines. David introduced me to them, Bob and Paula. I took on that project and still working with them and uh, pretty quickly met some really interesting people and started working with them. I met Charles Banks, who I still work with on a variety of different things. What was um, that meeting like? It was pretty funny because so Charles had, he was a partner in a vineyard in Santa Barbara, which was yet to be named, which is now Honada. It's a beautiful property. So he had this project down there and through a couple of people, they said, Hey, you should meet this guy down in Santa Barbara. He, he's looking for someone to, you know, be his winemaker and you guys would really hit it off. And I said, you know, I'm really busy in Napa. I just not really interested in that. And they just kept saying, no, no, you really need to meet this guy. So I flew down to, to LA and we had dinner together and really just, you know, you hit it off with someone and it was clear that we shared a certain vision and philosophy of what we might do together. And so there was sort of a months long courtship where we met and talked and I flew down there and saw the vineyard and met again. And Charles likes to make fun of me because at one of the last meetings we had before I signed on, one of his partners, uh, who I don't need to name, but he's he had a place in Malibu and I flew down there and went to Malibu. I, I felt like a, a screenwriter kind of pitching my idea of what they would do with the vineyard and winery and all this stuff. And at the end, uh, he looked at Charles and said, Hey, I guess we should do this. You know, what should we do? And I said, you know, I'd really like my wife to fly down and look at the vineyard. So she kind of signs off on this deal. <laughs> this guy looks at Charles and is like, is this guy serious? And it was the, one of the funniest moments. So Charles was like, no, no, really his wife's a viticulturist. This is a good idea. She should come down, but he still gives me a hard time about that. But any, Annie did fly down. She did sign off in it. We worked together for several years that led to Charles, which I still think is crazy, uh, convincing Gene Phillips to sell him Screamy Eagle. And, um, we ended up working on that together for five years or so. And so what was that like? That was pretty daunting and exciting and crazy. I mean, to be handed a baton like that, where, you know, there was sort of this veil of mystery over the whole property and everything. I didn't know much about Screaming Eagle, except for that. I had never tried the wine and I didn't really know anything about it. I mean, I had, I had known Heidi Barrett, who is an amazing figure in Napa Valley. She is someone to, to emulate and to, you know, to respect. I mean, she, I never got lucky enough to work with Heidi, but I always have followed what she's done and she really values family and farming and, you know, a lot of things that I hold dear as well. So I, I'd, I'd known Heidi and known her socially, but I'd never worked with her. And, you know, Charles calls me one day and says, Hey, I just got the keys. We just closed escrow last night. And it was so secretive. I had no idea. So I, I wasn't even that far away. I drove over there and we started going through all the barrels together and it was just so exciting and so daunting. But the more we got into it and the more we 
studied the soils and studied the wines and saw what was going on. I mean, the truth is that is a very terroir-driven wine. That's Most what I always people, thought. I always thought it was the modern Martha's. Like yeah, people don't realize signature. that. I mean, that is the more time I spent there. I mean, truth is, in 2006, when we took it over, I was terrified. I even told Charles that he should just not even hire me. I mean, that's he should just keep everything the same. And Charles said, no, no, I want to work with you on this. So that was amazing. So You're like, I need to call my wife. Hold on. <laughs> no, so the more we got into it and more we did realize, and, at, and so it was towards the end of Harvest of 2006 when I realized that these wines are going to be great no matter what because that vineyard is so strong. I mean, it really sort of gave me confidence that I could be myself and sort of not necessarily put a mark on it, but just be confident that I knew what I was doing. And we had a great, a great run there. I mean, we, again, it was, we took sort of a, a wine and turned it into an estate. You know, we designed and built a new winery. I mean, Jean was literally making the wine in her garage the first few years. And then in a very small stone building that was about as big as the room we're sitting in right now. I mean, one person could barely stand in there to do the pump overs. Um, and we, you know, we designed a winery that would just comfortably produce the wine from the entire vineyard. And then more of along the lines of a first growth Bordeaux model. I mean, just bottle what would make sense and go from there. And I think, I think we can all be proud of what, what we did there. And of course now, um, Nick, who was my assistant is still making the wines and doing a great job. And um, but you know, Charles's partnership split up. Um, I but wanted to work with Charles. We get there, I mean, how would you understand that vineyard? I mean, I, I don't think a lot of people, oh, Scream Eagle vineyard. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people have had the, the chance. Well, so it's the amazing thing is it's it's in the middle of Napa Valley, and most people who are there to visit would drive by it pretty much every day. They're driving around the valley, and they wouldn't know it. It sits at the foot of Pritchard Hill on that eastern side of Oakville where those red volcanic soils really define that area and the, those styles of wine, I mean, which are big and powerful wines, but Scream Eagle sits at the foot of that. So it's the soils that are in the Scream Eagle vineyard, I would argue are more sort of washed over, over millennia of just erosion. So you have these red rocks, but they're more like cobbles. And as it moves to the West through the vineyard, it becomes more of an alluvial sort of fan, but, the grapes that come from the red soils on the property, um, they have that power, but they also have an elegance. But it comes from the site. I mean, I don't know what it is about those red soils, but for me, that part of the valley is just, you know, I love to go visit St. Emilion and the plateau just beyond the village there, um, which is all limestone. The wines that come off of that particular place have such a, a power and a, a definition. And the soils in this part of Oakville have nothing to do with limestone or anything that's going on in Saint Emilion, but they have they have a strength of character like that. And so it's volcanic loam, right? Big boulders. It's volcanic loam, but it's Scream Eagle has quite a bit of loam, but as you go up the mountain, it's just more and more rock. I mean, so Dalla Valley, where I'm now lucky enough to make those wines, I've always been inspired by the wines when I first moved to Napa. Um, but those are a little more uh, loam and clay than you get up above, which is where Ovid is, which is just almost like solid rock. But there's just something about those red soils that 
Cabernet and Cabernet Franc too. They both just love. So I've always just literally pictured myself as someone who is trying at every step of the process, whether it's pruning or working the soil or thinning the fruit. I mean, each of these sites just trying to maximize what that's what it's going to give you. But that's pretty cool that you've over your career had three different exposures basically to one kind of soil at different heights. I mean, in a way. Oh, it's it's very lucky. And now for the past, you know, almost 10 years, we've for our Favia wines, we make a Cabernet Franc Cabernet Sauvignon blend called La Magdalena, which comes from those same soils. So Oakville Ranch, which is just sort of halfway between Ovid and Dalla Valley, we we make a wine from there, which is spectacular. And that's farmed by Phil Katuri, who's now become someone that we love working with. And yeah, he is the man. And that's all, all organically farmed. And, you know, Annie and Phil get along really well for that reason, because Annie's very much dedicated to organic farming. And and so it's just, you know, it's it, it's amazing to finally have worked with some of these properties over a decade plus. I mean, going on 15 years where you can go back and taste a vertical of wines that you've made and just see, hopefully see the site coming through and, and maybe some decisions that you made, you know, during those vintages and whatnot, but. Were some of those standouts for you at Screaming Eagle? I mean, were there things when you taste back, you're like, oh, I can see how that decision worked out. I don't know. That's an interesting question. You know, I always see myself, especially with properties like that as being more of the quality control guy. And so just making sure, like I said, you know, when the fruit comes in that it's well protected and the fermentations are going to go well and, you know, and looking for balance. So I would hope that that stretch when I was there, there's a thread that runs through it, which would be that the fruit and the site comes through more than any winemaking technique. Maybe that is a winemaking technique. I don't know. Right. And that was a period of replanting at Screaming Eagle? So the property, the property is fairly large. It's 50 acres of, of vines. There's a little sort of arc along those red soils that those grapes always went into the Screaming Eagle. Those grapes didn't have to be replanted right away. A lot of the vineyard um, that Gene was selling to other people very quietly had fallen to leaf roll and fan leaf and variety of other things. And so those blocks did need to be replanted. And so that happened in 2006 and seven. Um, but there was never a hiccup in the production of the wine. I mean, the quantities were never that big anyway. Um, but the exciting thing is we, you know, that little arc that Gene talked about of where the best soils were was much bigger than she thought. I think we dug 75 soil pits and did a lot of testing. And I remember that our viticultural consultant who we work with on a lot of things came back and said it was one of the only times in, in his career where he could basically recommend that you don't have to do anything, which is pretty cool. And that tells you that it's a very strong site. So, you know, just now a lot of the newer plantings are coming on line in a way where you'd be looking at them for that top wine. And I'm not involved anymore in, in any capacity like that. Luckily, I have a friendly relationship, so I can go back and taste the wines with Nick and see what he's doing. But um, all those new plantings, I think, are just now really kind of showing themselves. 
it must be interesting to have mentor relationships with the younger generation of people that you've kind of put in place at some of the key wineries over time. Oh, it's so great. I mean, yeah, I mean, what, what better gift than to be able to sort of pass on your knowledge to someone and have them then take it to a new level. And I would say all these younger guys and girls that I've been working with are doing that. So I'm just, uh, I'm lucky now to be able to be involved in a lot of the big picture things and still, you know, deciding when to harvest is a huge thing and, you know, blending and, and overseeing a lot of the things that happen during the year. But having these younger guys and girls working day to day in the winery and having worked with them now, some of them for close to 10 years, it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, you get to the point, you know, when you work with someone so much where you don't even have to even talk much anymore, it just sort of happens. And that's not that we don't talk to each other. We can talk about other things, but it's not like I need to even give instruction anymore. It's more like we collaborate and that's really exciting too. So one of the big picture things that seems like you developed as a skill set there is that you started to figure out how to design wineries because you had to do it a few times. I mean, there was one happening in Stagland, then you go to Screaming Eagle and there's a need for a new winery and it's happened uh, multiple times after that. So when you put together a winery, when you decide, okay, we need a winery, what do you have to think about? What's important? Well, really, when you when you think about that, you you want to think about the flow of production of making wine, right? I mean, grapes come in from the vineyard, they get fermented, they get aged in barrel, a couple things happen, then they get bottled, right? So I just want the wineries that I've been involved with, I really want that flow to be as seamless as possible. You know, using gravity whenever possible is nice. And gravity is great too, because I always joke that it never stops working. So when we can, we're trying to design things so that, you know, the tractor can basically pull up, grapes get sorted and handled, and then they go right into the tanks, which are underneath. And it's, it's nice when you're on a hillside too, especially in Napa Valley where people are very cognizant about what we call the view shed. I mean, we don't want a lot of buildings and things on the, in the landscape. And so being able to just have a lot of things underground is nice. So a lot of times the wineries will look just like a fruit packing shed on the outside. And then you go underneath and there's fermentation room. The barrels can be in a cave, you know, they come out the other end and you have a bottling area. Normally we use a bottling truck because most of the wineries I work with are really small and the, the equipment is very high tech. So to have a half million dollars in equipment that you only use for two days and is really hard to maintain, no thank you. <laughs> I have a very good friend who owns a bottling company and he's a mechanical engineer, keeps things perfectly synchronized and we can schedule with him to come up and bottle the wines basically in one or two days at one of these properties. and you know, he does a great job. So just having an area where that can come in and we have everything ready to go. But really for me, just trying to, trying to design something where everyone who's working there just says, wow, this is a great place to work. It's so easy. So that's basically where it is. And now I'm very excited to be doing it for myself. So Annie and I were lucky enough a little more than a year ago to finally uh, purchase property that uh, is in Coombsville where, where we've lived for years 
which is just east of the city of Napa, a little corner of the valley. And this is a winery that was built in 1886. The Carboni brothers were the first Italian settlers in Napa Valley. So these three brothers came in the 1870s and planted vineyards uh, out in Coombsville. Built the winery in 1886. It was a winery through Prohibition. Then it closed down. Um, it was a residence for a while. It was, you know, a few other things. And then it was just sort of sitting there. And luckily, the previous owner to us, which is is funny, it's Augustin Huneus Jr., who jokes that he was the guy that tried to talk me out of going into the wine business. But if you remember, he also gave me a couple contacts in Chile. Anyway, he owns a big vineyard next door for Faust. He bought the property. He got all the entitlements. But then it's, it, it's in a, an area where there are a lot of neighbors. The The permit is very small, not a lot of visitation. So that's what we want. Our winery is very small. We don't have a lot of visitors. So we were able to buy that winery from Augustine, which I still think is amazing. And we're renovating all the old buildings and we're going to build a proper winery for ourselves finally. And it's going to be great to do it for ourselves. So what's Coombsville like? Coombsville is a great place to live and also... I would say in the past 10 to 15 years become a really exciting place to grow grapes. It's, I joke that it's like the Brooklyn of Napa Valley. I mean, people that come to visit Napa Valley, they go to St. Helena, they go to Calistoga. Um, not many people come over to Coombsville. There aren't that many wineries there. There's a handful of them. Um, it's, it's in this little Southeast pocket of the Valley at the edge of the Vaca mountains, which Vaca mountain range is on the East side. That's where you have Howell mountain, you have Pritchard Hill, Atlas Peak, that side of the valley, all volcanic soils, well-drained, but it's cooler down there. So closer to the bay, you get more of the fog coming in, so it's cooler. You know, up in Oakville, St. Helena, it could be 100 degrees in the middle of the summer, and in Coombsville, it's going to be 90 degrees, which makes it a very different growing area. And I really like the wines that come out of there. It has a little bit more of the savory side of Cabernet Sauvignon. So a little bit more of the dried herbs and earthiness and loaminess. Um, but you still get hints of that blackberry and cassis, sometimes even more than hints in a, you know, in a drier, warmer year like we've had the past couple of years. But so the wines definitely have a signature. It's interesting though, and back in the so the textbooks from the 1950s and earlier from UC Davis would tell you that you can't grow Bordeaux varieties in Coombsville. So something is changing. Obviously, the climate's changing. Viticulture's changing. Some of the wines coming out of there are really, really exciting. So we're just happy to be there. I mean, it's close to town. It's close to San Francisco. We can be in San Francisco in less than an hour without traffic, which means like late at night. <laughs> so yeah, a great place to be. And it's also... It's got a lot of history to it, but it's also a new area, which I think is is pretty fun. I feel like that's a dynamic you've hit a few times. You're in a historical winery or a historical place, but it's kind of a new era for that place or winery. Well, the fun thing is it's always kind of a new era, right? So even these places that have been around for a long time, things don't stay the same. I mean, Maya Kamas is a great example. Bob Travers just created something amazing up there, but he was there for 45 years. So when he got there in 1968, 
he made a lot of improvements and he changed a lot of things and he planted new vineyards. And so, you know, I spoke a little bit about what it was like at Screaming Eagle to take over, but at Mayakamas, it's even more daunting because you have a very uh, vocal following of those wines. And I'm a big fan of those wines as well. So a couple of years ago when we took over, there was so much talk about, well, you're not going to change anything, right? And I think that 95% of that had to come from people who had never visited there because, you know, 45 years, there's some updating that needs to be done. So we did put in a new refrigeration system. We upgraded the electrical. We refinished the concrete tanks. You know, we've made, we've made some quote unquote upgrades, but you know, it took me a couple of years till just now to finally feel comfortable. Like, you know what? It was just time to do that. It was just time to update some things. And it doesn't mean the style of the wine has to change. And in fact, I love it up there because it gives me the green light to explore that side of making Napa Valley wines where... Which is probably a little different than some of those other sites. Oh, it's very different. I mean, I would lose my job most places if I decided to make a 12.5% Cabernet Sauvignon or 13% alcohol Cabernet Sauvignon. But... um up there, it's, you know, it's so exciting. We have 45 years of handwritten notebooks from Bob and all these wines to go back to and say, oh my gosh, let's taste this wine from you know, 1977, for example, or 1974, or some of the early 1980s wines, which are now just still so alive. And you go back and you see when the grapes were harvested and how many days the grapes were on the skins and all that sort of thing. And, and you realize that you can, you can explore that side and not think that just the history of Napa didn't start in 1992. Right. At the same time, a lot of great things have happened in 1992. So it's just really something special to be able to go in all different directions. Now it's fun. What is the protocol these days? I mean, at my comments. The protocol. Well, that's a very official word. <laughs> I mean, I think Bob was a very pragmatic guy. And I think for us, we're very pragmatic as well. I mean, if anyone's ever visited, you see that making the wine there is, it's, it's old school. I mean, we run the crush equipment on a generator. We don't have enough power to even power the destemmer up there. You know, the protocol is we're, we're harvesting on the early side for sure compared to what most people do. We're not necessarily extracting the maximum from the grapes. We're pressing when the wines are still quite tannic. And by picking early, the wines are fairly acidic and low pH. And so by definition, the wines are tannic and acidic when they're young, which is different from a lot of wines now where you feel like the wine, when it's presented right after bottling, needs to taste like it's ready, right? And there's always that balance. But on this side of the equation with Mayakamas, we're more thinking about the wines in 20 years, in 25 years. And another thing is the wines have always been aged in older wood and mostly foudre, you know, like big, large format, like 1,200-gallon casks. Which is sometimes not oak, right? Like sometimes there's redwood and stuff. 
Uh, these are all oak. Oh, okay. Um, some of them are American oak, but it doesn't even matter anymore. From Some of them are from the 1920s. So it was funny. My first year there, I just thought, oh my God, I'm going to take this wine that we just made and we're going to really put it in one of these casks that it's 75 years old. And uh, I had a really hard time with that. <laughs> but that was a really fun time because I was in contact with Bob Travers. He had just moved off the property and he and I were in contact and talking and it was pretty funny because he said, you know, whatever questions you guys have, you know, please call me and I'm happy to be involved. And I'll never forget. I were just about to put these new wines in 2013 to cask. And some of the, some of the tanks we knew were fine. You know, they were, we had just emptied them for bottling and some of them hadn't been used in a while. And I called Bob Travers and I left him a message saying, Bob, you got to give me a call. We're about to put these wines to cask. I just want you to tell me one more time that they're okay. And he didn't call me back. And for like a week, I thought, oh my God, Bob's just moved on. He doesn't want to be engaged anymore. And, you know, it was pretty soon we just had to make the decision and we just decided, all right, we're going to put the wines in there. And we did. And Bob calls me like a couple weeks later. He said, oh my God, it was nine o'clock at night. I'm at home cooking dinner with my wife and I look at my phone ringing and it's Bob Travers. So of course I answer the phone and he says, Andy, oh my gosh, I'm so glad. I'm so sorry. I didn't call you back. We were traveling in Asia. You know, we were in Hong Kong. We were in China. We went to Japan. It was great. I'm so sorry, but I hope you filled up those tanks because they're fine. And I just thought, thank God, you know, because we had to make a decision. It was just so funny. And we did, and the wines are fine and uh, and different, which is great. I mean, the wines, like I say, have that, they have a savory quality to them. They're, it's not the sweet, even though, you know, the wines are dry. A lot of California wines have more of a sweet fruit profile. These are more on that savory side, which, which is really interesting. And to watch those wines evolve, too, is just pretty awesome. So how much do you think of that is, you know, the fact that there's some volcanic terroir there? There's definitely a difference with the wines from Mount Veter. I mean, if you drive up there, you realize that you're not in Napa Valley anymore. I mean, you're in Napa County, and on the label it says Napa Valley. But when you drive up that high, you're not in Napa Valley anymore. It's a totally different world. Grapes ripen differently. You know, many years, you're not going to get the profile that most people recognize as Napa Valley Cabernet. Some people have... and some of the, because of the winemaking too, some people have, have likened Mayakamas to more like Barolo, right? I mean, you have, you have these dry wines, you have that more earthy side of the wine, but, um, there is definitely a terroir influence, but I would say it's more from the elevation and than it is from the soils. We have very diverse soils up there. Um, not all the, the grapes are planted just on the volcanic soil and then harvesting earlier, definitely is going to give you that style. And then it's funny because that style doesn't even marry well with new oak. The first year, of course, being who I am, I said, well, we need to buy some new barrels, right? Some of these barrels are 40 years old. What the hell are we doing with these, right? So we bought a few new barrels. We put the wine in the new barrels and realized it doesn't really work because it's, it's their competing flavors, right? So putting that wine in the older wood 
creates something beautiful. It's just different from what you get when you're in Oakville, you have that bigger blackberry cassis kind of character. I love what that does with new Oak. A lot of the wines that I make from that part of the Valley really marry well with new French Oak. And so, you know, with our own wines and with the Dalla Valley wines and Ovid in particular, we're, we're using new French Oak, but I would say less every year probably now like 50% new. Whereas, you know, when we were first starting out, it was a hundred percent or, you know, and then dialing down from there. Um, but when you start a new winery, you know, you got to buy new stuff. So we bought new barrels and now, you know, over the years, I just have realized that the grapes are so strong from those sites. I want to let that come forward. So even with those more quote unquote modern style of wines, I think less new Oak is, is a little bit better these days. And you were involved with a replant that Mayacom was kind of planning that out. Which is still happening. Yeah. I mean, we have, we have some parts of the vineyard that are doing well. We had, unfortunately, some parts of the vineyard that Bob had replanted in the eighties that he planted on AXR. And those, um, just were not producing much at all. And what was coming off was not really, you know, reflective of what we want to do or what you know, can be done up there. Um, so we are replanting. Yeah. What's important to you as you do that? Well, it's great when you replant a vineyard, it's always, a an opportunity to do something different, not meaning change everything, but improve. So different rootstocks, different row directions, smaller blocks. So we've done a lot of soil analysis up there. We know that even though For example, there was a five acre planting on one certain spot. It's actually two or three different soil types. And so we're going to break it up smaller and we're going to have, you know, two or three different rootstocks. Or we had some Chardonnay planted on amazing, you know, spot that when you walk out there, you just, you want red, right? So, and on the same, at the same time we had, we had Cabernet Sauvignon planted on some heavier clay soils, which the Chardonnay is going to do phenomenally on. So we're, we're going to just, you know, redesign things to bring us what we want overall, but different parts of the vineyard will be just utilized in different ways. So is that that amphitheater? What you're going to move from Chardonnay to? to so the amphitheater, which we call the terraces, unfortunately we did have to pull out after 2013. We made the last, Chardonnay, which we bottled separately, which is delicious from those terraces. We're, we're going to plant rootstock next year. We still haven't really decided what we're going to do hundred percent on that whole thing. But the lower part of that, where you have those red soils is definitely going to be Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, some of the terraces, it's a beautiful amphitheater that looks South down in the Bay. I would say the part that's Facing southeast, we might do Chardonnay, and the part that faces southwest, maybe we'd do Cabernet, but we're not really even sure yet. It's kind of fun because you can take your time. It takes a long time to replant a vineyard. I mean, for me, when I hear about your career, this sounds like the property that's so completely different. Is that fair? Well, I think anybody who'd be sitting here, you would say the same thing to, right? Sure. Because it's such a unique property. I mean... And it's different in so many ways. I mean, the property itself is so diverse in terms of soil types and little blocks here and there. The style of the wine is so different from what I quote unquote grew up with. 
And so, yeah, at the same time, it's like being given the green light to do something totally new and different. Is that affecting your viewpoint going into Fabia or are those just two different things? Like, is this coming back into other winemaking you're doing? I think a lot of people would expect that I would bring everything I've learned everywhere else and apply it to my Akamas, which would be a huge mistake because like I was saying before, you can't expect that the grapes that come off of that high mountain are going to be like you get elsewhere. At the same time, there are a lot of things about just quality control and consistency and things like that, that I think are going to benefit that that winery is going to benefit from. I mean, we definitely want consistency and what we're trying to do is distill down what are the defining features that make that wine different and special and how can we bring that out? What have you decided? What are those? The acid and tannin are really important. No new wood, lower alcohol. So those are the things that I think really define that. And so we're going to stay true to that. But at the same time, you know, Bob used to bottle the wines by hand over the course of weeks. And that's just a recipe for bottle variation. You know, we are, we've invested in refrigeration and stainless steel tanks for bottling and things like that. And, you know, even the wines that I didn't make, the wines we inherited, you know, we bottled it all in the course of a few hours, which I think, you know, the end user should be happy about that because the style is the same. But hopefully every bottle that you're going to open is going to be predictable in style. So then on the other end of the spectrum, all the other vineyards I work with are also really special and have their own things to say. And a lot of them I've been working with now for years. And I would say, you know, in the mid to late 2000s, I was guilty, like a lot of people, of pushing the ripeness a little bit. But even since 2001, two, yeah, 2001 and two, I would argue those wines are not overly ripe. But in the, you know, 2005, six, seven, there were some vintages where they're very lush wines. I'd say since then, I've been moving things in a different direction. But now, having worked at Maya Kamas, I'm really moving in a different direction. I mean, at Dalla Valley, for instance, you look at when things were being harvested in the early nineties where I just love those wines. Me too. You know, we weren't, people weren't waiting for 25, 26 pricks. So we're not going to wait for that anymore. You know, same with my own wines. We're picking things earlier. We're accepting the high acid in the wines, which, you know, when you taste them as a barrel sample, you cringe a little bit, right? But you know, the truth is you make a wine and we don't even release the wines for three years. They're aging. So by the time they are released and a couple few years in bottle, I think the wines are going to be alive and be fresh and have a much more, a stronger sense of place. And that's what I've always wanted in the wines is a sense of place. You know, I don't want people to necessarily taste a wine and say, oh, that must be an Andy Erickson wine because it tastes like X, Y, or Z, right? I want, see, I love the farming part and the site part. So I want to be involved in that. But in the end, I want that to be what comes out in the wine. So I think you get that better, you know, just being more in tune and harvesting when the grapes need to be harvested. And in fact, for myself and for most of my clients now, we've invested in new sorting tables, not, not a, 
you know, so like 15 years ago, people were super impressed when they showed up during harvest and there were like 20 people hovered around a sorting table, picking out little bits and pieces of this and that. And the problem with that is it goes so slow that the first few lots that you harvested are awesome. And then if you miss the window and the grapes get too ripe, you just missed it. So we now have decided that it's much better to know that the grapes need to be harvested and they're coming into the winery. You know, you don't need to sort out every little bit of this and that because, you know, you don't want the wines to be totally monochromatic anyway. And, you know, a vineyard, even if it's a small vineyard, it's going to take you a week to 10 days to harvest that whole vineyard. And so if you say, well, it's not quite ready yet and we're going to sort it, this and that, you know, you've turned that 10 days into 20 days. And depending on what happens, you know, you may have missed something special. So we're really trying to set ourselves up where when we need to pull the trigger, we just pull the trigger and we're harvesting. It's funny because, you know, John Kongsgar was an early mentor for you. And then in his latest career evolution, he planted Atlas Peak, which is looks at Mayakamas at elevation, right? They, they, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I didn't think about that. And they're some of the two highest vineyards in the, in the county. Easily. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so you kind of found each other again in a loop, you know, you kind of look at, look at each other across the mountain. Yeah. And our, new which is actually very old winery is just sort of at the foot of the hill when john drives down the hill he's not far from us so hopefully we'll get him to swing in there more often i mean we it's fun we do taste wines together they john and alex were over recently tasting sauvignon blanc with us annie and i planted a dry farmed sauvignon blanc vineyard in coombsville which we're very excited about we love the wines coming off it so john and Alex came over and we were tasting together the couple different clones we have. And they're, they're now going to plant some Sauvignon Blanc up there with cuttings from our vineyard, which is pretty awesome. And full so circle. How do you see Fabio developing over, say, the next five years? I mean, what's the plan? We've been making wine from two different vineyards, one in Coombsville, one in Oakville, for about 10 years now. And we blend those together for our Cabernet. Now we're going to we're going to offer two because we really want to start to highlight Coombsville. We're really excited about that area. So you'll be seeing more wines with the Coombsville appellation on it from us. And, you know, we're going to have our own little workshop to work in and we're living on the property. And so you talk about hands-on, um, you walk out our kitchen door and down the stairs and you're in the barrel cellar. So it's going to be, I guess you call it home winemaking again. Andy Erickson went all the way to Chile to come back to do winemaking at home. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. It's been great. I appreciate it. Andy Erickson is a co-owner of Favia with his wife, and he's a consultant for many wineries in the Napa Valley. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tanoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe 
on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. This interview was made possible with the assistance of Napa Valley Vintners, a nonprofit trade association committed to promoting and protecting the Napa Valley.